each day. Death corrodes what we call living, and life ceaselessly swallows our desire to embrace the void. this void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the new story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 130 of Embrace the Void, where the unstoppable social contract meets the immovable nap. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we have another installment of Bravely Defending Controversial Positions. Uh, Just a quick reminder, if you're noticing yourself looking forward to these weekly episodes, please like and review us on the various pod machines, uh, and consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash embrace the void. That said, more content for the content gods. My guest this week is Jason Lee Bias, a philosophy PhD student at the University of Michigan. Jason, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, void. It's actually much darker in here than I was expecting. I can't even see you. Yeah, everyone gets the mistaken impression from Good Place that the void is an all-white space. That's just Mm -hmm. Janet's void. She likes Mm -hmm. her void bright. Um so yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really am looking forward to chatting about today's topic. Um, do you? What are you studying? I know you're in the philosophy department over mm-hmm. at Michigan. I'm curious what your interests are in. Are you do mostly political philosophy, or is it something? Yeah, else? yeah. I would say political philosophy, philosophy of law, ethics. Um, I think my main interest the last little bit has been punishment, but also some like rights theory and kind of. Uh, and I'm starting to get into kind of axiology or rather like alternatives to it. So Okay, cool. Um I'm definitely interested in some punishment things, especially around the questions of free will, but I'll I'll try not to diverge us over into that topic when we have so many other things that are important to cover. Uh do you want to maybe give folks a little bit of a sense of sort of I guess I like to ask what kind of terminology would you use to self-identify politically speaking at this particular point? Yeah, so there's a lot that I think are good in different contexts, so I'll just throw them out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so like libertarian, anarchist, uh, radical liberal, individualist anarchist, market anarchist, and then free market anti-capitalist. Okay, so does that mean that libertarian and anarchist aren't, aren't the same thing but are connected in some way? Since they Yeah, I would up? say that um, – they're overlapping Venn diagrams. There are definitely libertarians who are not anarchists. There are definitely anarchists who are not libertarians. And then I think there are also anarchists and liber- who are libertarians and vice versa in a pretty robust way. Okay, great. So you're sort of here nominally to defend the libertarian side, which I'm excited yes. about because 
Um, it is a view that I have bagged on repeatedly on the show, and you've disagreed yeah. with me on Twitter some about this, and that's great. And I'm I'm mm-hmm. always happy to rehabilitate um, lost viewpoints out there in the in the void. So you and I, I'm going to be citing a lot from an article that you sent me that I thought was really great called Radical Liberalism about how the libertarian view has lost its soul in some kind of way. So I guess I want to start by asking, and this will help us define our terms here a little bit, what would you say is the soul of libertarianism? Yeah, so I wrote that article kind of in early uh, fall 2017, late summer 2017, when I was kind of at the bottom of my thoughts with the libertarian movement, uh, while still obviously believing the same thing, so on and so forth. And I was coming to realize that I felt like uh, libertarianism had lost sight of the fact that it's kind of motivating impulse was what I see as kind of a radicalized form of liberalism, that the certain kinds of uh, social values, it's not just that they fare better under uh, libertarianism, under a system where people's rights are respected, but rather that that's a large part of the kind of the motivational impulse. And that's what I mean by the soul of a political or philosophical movement, where it's not just something about the logical structure of the ideas, but kind of what is it that gets some that is the motivating drive between behind why you would believe those things. Okay. So how do you contrast? You said radical liberalism there. Yeah. Um, do you want me to give you a sense of what you mean by liberalism and then we'll, we'll figure out what radical means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. So liberalism. So at the kind of furthest back way of looking at this is kind of the philosophical, political, political, philosophical movement that begins uh, in the Enlightenment, both the Continental Enlightenment and um, the kind of a lot of uh, concurrent stuff happening in uh, the British Isles, um, mm-hmm. where there's an emphasis on kind of social cooperation, an emphasis on uh, leveling social hierarchies and also natural rights, commerce, free associations, so on and so forth. Um, and but behind that, there's obviously going to be philosophical justifications. My own view is going to be very natural rights heavy here. And then behind that, even, I think it's just kind of a way of looking at the world. What I would see is kind of the core liberal idea is this kind of implicit picture where people's interests are not um, naturally at war with one another. And what I mean by that is that it's not the case that every time that one person is doing well, that means that someone else must be doing poorly in respect to the extent to that person is doing well, that actually our well-being feeds off of one another, uh, hmm. that it's better for all of us, for each of us to be doing better. So this is interesting to me because I, I identify as a liberal state cuck kind of individual, um, mm-hmm. even, even, even a very pessimistic one. But still, I think that like I lean towards the social contract. Um, and I so so when I was reading through this material, I got the sense that one one difference here might be sort of views about what the state of nature looks like um, mm-hmm. for individuals. Mm-hmm. If like in the state of nature, there would be more collaboration versus more conflict, like is your view kind of more of a Rousseau, you know, human beings are naturally kind of in a good place in nature and then culture comes along and throws chains on them. And is mm-hmm. that then mm-hmm. how we want to make sense of the difference here, because I mean, I guess I would also add, like, 
I, I feel like as a liberal, I don't actually think that um, there's a natural harmony between people's interests. There can be in certain situations, but I think mm-hmm. in other situations, there can absolutely be irreducible conflicts mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. people's interests. And I'm wondering if you think that that, that I could, if I could still be a liberal, even if I believe that as right. long as I believe like, you know, a society that governs the least is the best society. Yeah. So the one one thing going on in this article that is not made explicit is that I myself am kind of operating with kind of a broadly Aristotelian moral framework. So when I say mm-hmm. natural, I'm meaning something a little bit slippery, right? Which mm-hmm. is that I'm I'm using that in a very like kind of normative sense. Whereas when people are doing the right things that there's mm-hmm. nothing about us that um, that our basic fundamental interests um, uh-huh. are going to be like naturally at odds naturally in the sense of like, it has to be this way that when we are, when we are living the bet way that is best for us, that it's going to be at odds with one another. Um, so more fundamentally than that, um, I don't think I would take a kind of Rousseauian picture because that seems to be not just uh, – that picture of the state of nature is not just kind of non-state. It's also kind of pre-civilization, pre-law. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. definitely would not uh, – my picture of of a good ordered anarchy is not one that is non-civilization, non uh, – that was without a legal system. Hmm. Uh, we can talk about that more. But, yeah, that, that's an interesting – that's a surprising thing to hear because I think when most folks hear anarchy, they yeah. assume not laws. Um, yeah, so. yeah. So the distinction there is going to be something like um, a state is where there's a monopoly legal system and where there's one kind of institutional body that is uniquely able to craft the laws without kind of op- – without kind of uh, op- opposition, competition, and where – they kind of have a special moral standing in society where they uniquely are able to issue authoritative commands. And then an anarchist view of law would be one where that emerges from all kinds of conflict resolution. And there's no individual actors that just like barring everything else has unique social standing. Hmm. Um, And then, but going kind of circling back to your original question, I would not say that um, so I'm going to take a, a particularly strong view about a natural harmony of interests um, because of the Aristotelian stuff I'm talking about, especially because another thing going on in the background is I'm going to say, yeah, of course there are like spot instances where there's a zero sum situation where I would be better off, but in only in a way that where the only way that I'm going to be better off in kind of like a brute material way is a way that would be less good for you. But I'm going to say that if we, one, if we zoom out, and this I think is true of liberalism generally, that if we zoom out and we say, take a more long-term picture um, where we say, okay, yeah, maybe in the spot instances, this isn't always true, but in the long run, uh, the things that are better for the things that are better for each individual are going to be the things that are better for everyone in mm-hmm. on the whole kind of a rule consequentialist uh, mm-hmm. picture there in terms of um, in terms of uh, 
economic growth, uh, cooperation, so, so on and so forth. But then beyond that, and this is going to be my particular view rather than what I think is core to liberalism itself, is I'm also going to say that even in those, uh, that even in a lot of spot transactions, that if the reason that it's a zero sum situation is something to do with justice or injustice, right? Mm -hmm. then there's something higher, there's a higher benefit to me to uh, cooperating justly with other people than whatever immediate material benefit we're going to get there in the, in the short term. I strongly agree with the kind of old Socratic line that it's uh, better to suffer an injustice than to commit one. But again, mm -hmm. that's my own particular kind of spin on things. Right. Uh, the broader point I'm trying to make here is just that uh, there's there's a kind of assumption that uh, the fruits of social cooperation uh, is something that is good for everyone. That it's the the, yeah. the human society is not bottom out into just a bunch of brute conflicts. So I guess I, I sort of half agree. I think I, I mean mm -hmm. I, I agree in the sense that. Um, I do think that cooperation is the better path to flourishing and that mm -hmm. I think uh, if you have a large group of individuals who are all living sort of lives of flourishing, that's likely to involve far less conflict, generally speaking, than um, a, you know, a situation where there's a bunch of people who are not successfully flourishing. Mm -hmm. I, I do worry that um, the achievement of that kind of group flourishing involves perhaps potentially more control than your view has in mind. And I'm also, mm -hmm. I'm also want to say that, like, I think there's the possibility that even when everyone is acting ethically, there can still be problems and, and fundamental irreducible conflicts as a result of the sort of my views about the plurality of right. moral foundations. Um, and right, I think, right. you know, I guess my sense is, my feeling in reading your thing was that like liberals have a bit of a naive view about the universe mm -hmm. as being ordered mm -hmm. in some moral kind of way where to me my moral realism goes hand in hand with the view that the universe is still pretty chaotic and that right. ethics may be fundamentally a hot mess even if it is mm -hmm. real so yeah mm -hmm. yeah so i think any uh, ethical theory is going to be a rough approximation of the world mm -hmm. um, and there's definitely going to be irreducibly plural goods in terms of our understanding of it. Probably there's something coherent at the very root bottom of everything, but that doesn't mean that that's going to be the thing that we're going to have immediate access to. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the kind of moral goods that we can, that we can see, there's going to be a lot of big conflicts. Um, but I don't want to say that, the way in which there's a natural harmony of interest is just kind of like some uh, especially spooky pre-existing like cosmic harmony, but mm -hmm. rather just that um, because of the kind of creatures we are um, and be especially because of our ability to socially cooperate, so on and so forth, that, that there are benefits to our, um, to our uh, cooperation and there's going to be tragic circumstances where there are conf where there are conflicts in material terms, but um, stepping back again, I think the uh, benefits of living a just life, being a just person, so on and so forth, that that's going to be another sort of thing um, that I'm going to push on. I think I okay. 
I think there's something you you said that I'm forgetting though. So if is there was there something in your question that I'm that I'm kind of ignoring in that answer? No, I mean I think that's that's you know it's good to sort of draw distinctions here. I think we're getting I get a sense of what you're getting at. Maybe it would help to so with with some sense of liberalism here. How do you mean that libertarianism is radical liberalism? Right. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so um, when I say radical, I don't just mean uh, kind of more extreme. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways in which you might see libertarianism as that, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, a liberalism in general has an affinity for kind of natural rights. And libertarians are really hardcore about that. So that's true in, a, true in a certain sense. But when I say radical, I'm thinking more of kind of looking at issues at the roots, um, looking at the way in which the things that we see as problems kind of are really like caked into um, the structure of society. So uh, as an analogy here, um, this is a very dicey terminology, but at the broadest possible terms, it seems to me that the fundamental claim of like radical feminism is Mm -hmm. that our society is structured from the bottom up by patriarchy, that it's affected, right? By Mm -hmm. patriarchy that's going to impact everything. Right. And then for radical liberalism, I would say similarly that our society is fundamentally altered and shaped by the kinds of violations of liberal principle that mm-hmm. are just kind of, that are cut very deep, right? Um, that it's not just that that there are all these spot instances in which people. Um, happen to be taking advantage of one another, that people happen to be uh, violating one another's rights, but there are these really deep, pervasive mm-hmm. things that cut into the structure of our society that are in conflict with liberal principle and really structure things from the bo- from the bottom up, right? So okay. from the ground up. So like police, prisons, the military, so on and so forth. I think these right. things are actually in conflict with liberal principle. And of course, they structure a lot of the world that we see. And the kind of getting into uh, some of the some of the dis- disagreements you were talking about a second ago, I would say that, yeah, of course, there's gross inequalities. There are gross mm-hmm. forms of domination between between people that are that seem to happen, that seem to happen in just the normal uh, living out of daily life. But what I want to observe about that is that those aren't, at least from my perspective, going to come about through just the normal everyday life of interacting with one another peacefully. Those are products of layers and layers of uh, structural inequality at the the level of uh, violations of people's rights, of interventions into Mm -hmm. free exchange, into free association that make it such that with that then when people interact on those terms, they are going to have large scale domination. Uh, and that is the kind of perspective that I see uh, that a more radical pr- um, picture of liber- liberalism should have, which is, yes, that we have a natural harmony of interests, but that there are no classes in nature, right? That there's no uh, there are no people who are just going to necessarily be above one another in just if people are just operating in terms of a fair cooperation. However, we're not operating on fair terms of cooperation, and thus we're going to have 
quite a bit of class inequality in the actually existing world. Yeah, I mean, I guess my concern there is going to be we're never going to be operating on terms of fair interaction because, Mm -hmm. I mean, even all the way back before society, we were not operating in terms of fair interaction there was still Mm -hmm. there were there were natural advantages right there's not like you know classes in the in the cultural sense but there's people Mm -hmm. who are stronger and people who are weaker and and in those strengths and weaknesses then transfer over to social dominance Uh which gets reinforced in all the systemic ways that you're talking about and so like here we are now uh thousands of years later right and we're all Mm -hmm. completely built around all of this kind of you know all of these kinds of social conflicts and I, I I worry about what will happen if we if we try to move to a state. I mean, like we we try to I don't know try to bring about a state that um, a- avoids those problems, but I worry we'll end up just kind of allowing for them. Um, but so yeah. I, 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 I want to get to that because we'll get we'll get to like policy sort of discussion here in a second. But I want to tease out a little bit more this distinction between liberalism and libertarianism because. Yeah. Um, one thing that comes to mind when I think of this distinction that people often argue when I get in debates about this is you know, the libertarian view is that there are natural rights, but they're all negative natural rights, right? Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. they're not a positive right in the sense of that, like, I don't have a positive obligation towards your well-being and you don't have a positive right. obligation towards me. Do you feel like that's a fair characterization of libertarianism or is that is that essential to the view, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I would want to break down a few of the thoughts here. So Mm -hmm. sometimes people talk about libertarianism as if they have no positive – it means that people don't have any unchosen positive obligations to each other just in the sense that that there's no positive things we have to do for one another that – that you can even like just morally sanction someone for not doing so on and so forth – that, for example, if somebody is drowning in a pond and the and somebody doesn't pull them out, then mm-hmm. there's then there's nothing the libertarian can say that they did wrong in that situation. That mm-hmm. I definitely don't think is a libertarian view. I would say that the liber the the thing that comes closer to that um, to to true would be something like that there's only a limited set of things that you can do for one another that you can make people do for one another with violence right i think violence is going to be the the key difference there right mm. not just whether or not you have positive obligations i think we have pretty robust positive obligations to people okay. um, and That's i think i might even I appreciate say that. there are some cases that naively look like a negative rights situation where there no one is is uh where no one is is doing violence to one another, but you can force someone to do something. But whenever those are the case, it's going to be because the the particular positioning has made it such that the two people do not stand in kind of relations of equal authority. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, the there might be cases where the uh, person is effectively imprisoning someone in a certain situation. Uh, so I don't. So, so one other thing that sometimes libertarianism gets saddled with, and this is not totally unfair because there's definitely been libertarians who have taken this position, is so, for example, some kind of like that child abandonment, right? Mm-hmm. That you can just that you can just uh, totally uh, refuse to an infant child, and it's going to die, right? 
Mm-hmm. And there's nothing, there's nothing um, there that the libertarian could say was a rights violation. Now, importantly, even there, even for those libertarians, they're still going to be able to say that something has been done wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. morality and what you can force on people are going to come part for the libertarian. Right. Of course. But I would say that even in those cases, that given the circumstances, the person who is abandoning the child, uh, the infant is effectively uh, imprisoning the infant, right? That you have to be able to prov- provide the child at, at very bare minimum the ability to go to someone else who will uh, feed for them and so on and so forth. Uh, okay. But that's going to be, those would be kind of the exception cases. Generally speaking, it's definitely the case that that you don't have robust positive rights in the sense that there's like a set of uh, interests that people can be forced forced to provide for you uh, for just because that would be good for you. Um, rather, limitations on the use of force are going to be in cases where you are preventing the use of force or uh, defending against the use of force. Interesting. I so I I'm not 100 percent sure. I think it's broadly a kind of force, actually. But yeah, go on. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not 100 sure that I agree that there's no situation where I feel like force could be used to in a justifiably to um, require someone to protect someone else's positive right. But it's an it's an interesting thought, um, and I certainly I, I appreciate your distinction there between you know, what might be good or bad and what might be something that we can demand of people from a moral stance. So not not even just, not even just that, but there's a difference between what we can demand of people from a moral stance Mm -hmm. versus what we can physically force them to do. Right. I can can say you morally failed your duty in this case, even if it's not the sort of thing that I am able to physically compel you to do. Yeah, I definitely think that there's room in there for there to be yeah things that fall into that sort of not gray area, but like in between kind of space. Um, mm-hmm. So, but let's so you t- you talked about the foundations that you are the the radical view is trying to challenge certain foundations, and I think one good example of what you have in mind there and what you are talking about with this idea of um, the. Uh, what what we can actually enforce is the sort of classic libertarian claim that taxation is theft. Um, yes. Which so so from my perspective, that seems not true in theory, though it could be true in practice. I can certainly imagine governments where taxation absolutely is theft, and I think maybe sometimes our government is in that position, though not always. Um, mm-hmm. So I I guess I want to understand: Do you think that's true for any and all social contracts? Or do you think that there are social contracts that could involve taxation that um, aren't versions of theft? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of the answer here is going to depend on what we see as the definition of taxation. And that's a much more boring conversation, I think. (laughs) So rather than that, I'll just say, yeah, for just about any kind of any kind of arrangement that I think is worth calling uh, taxation, I would say I would classify it as a form of theft. And the reason for that is because just because an organization uh, provides benefits in some way, that's not enough to say that they're forcibly taking it from you is justified. Right. Mm -hmm. 
that if the Boy Scouts or the APA or whatever, that if they want to get raised funds, they have to they have to get it from me voluntarily. Whereas the state claims a right to just take it by force, right? That if I don't pay my taxes, then bad things will happen to me, so on and so forth. And I think really part of the issue um, behind this issue is the question of like state legitimacy, uh, where the reason people don't see taxation as theft is because they are assuming some kind of background legitimacy where the state has unique rights that other people do not have, such that they're not like a normal organization like the Boy Scouts or the APA or the Episcopalian Church across the street from me, mm-hmm. that they can actually that they're that there's something that I depend upon them in some special way, or that I have that I have engaged in some kind of cooperation through the state or something like that, that gives them special rights. Uh, which includes like the the right to um, take resources that they need to sustain their activities. Okay. But I think there, I don't think anyone has provided a good account of state legitimacy. And since there is no good account of state legitimacy, they're just an institution like any other. And if, since they're an institution just like any other, they can't get their uh, resources through force. Okay, great. So I, I think this is... Yeah, this is really getting at the heart of my disagreement with this right. position now. I think, right? So, um, so let me so let me give an example. Let me give like a hypothetical where it seems to me that it wouldn't be true that taxation is theft and would instead be a sort of legitimate situation. So, I have in mind a kind of progressive, you know, functionally ideal state, right? Like, I'm not saying uh, there can't be anything possibly wrong in it, but that it's it's working as intended, and I think. I think the libertarian, if they want to make a make a fair argument here, right, has to at least acknowledge that there could be a a state that could function as intended. Um, mm-hmm. So, assuming mm-hmm. a state that functions as intended, right, it's providing me a variety of services, as you say, that are services that address problems that I don't feel like can be adequately addressed by a private membership kind of organization like the ones that you were describing. Mm -hmm. I have in mind primarily um, the kind of defense things that I think libertarians are often anxious Mm -hmm. about as a justification Mm -hmm. for government, like um, protecting, you know, like, uh, again, um, I I do believe that there are problems with the police, but I would rather have a rule of law than not a rule of law. And Uh the other major concerns would be kinds of large-scale collective action problems that I think, uh, things like a social safety net, I think there's a lot of value to having uh, a robust social safety net. And so if we imagine a scenario where I'm paying a fair amount of taxes, enough not enough to, you know, impoverish me, but enough that it, you know, it challenge it costs me a little bit. It isn't totally free. And in exchange for that I have a robust social safety net and a functioning judiciary and a functioning, you know, legislature. And I see, you know, laws being promulgated that benefit people um, in various ways. Uh, that seems to me to be a great deal. And I, that, like, I would totally, vol- like, in the Rawlsian kind of way, like, I couldn't, I, I would reasonably buy into that and maybe couldn't reasonably necessarily refuse that, um, especially mm-hmm. for things like, um, medical care and basic needs, you know, and, and basic rights like education. Like, it's just very hard for me to imagine a society that is flourishing without providing some kind of robust 
public education. So I guess I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious how you feel if if you feel. Well, I guess, let me just first ask: Do you feel like in that hypothetical is taxation still still theft in that situation? Right. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, um, and like you're saying, you're you're stipulating that this is working in the right way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I'm going to have a lot of empirical disagreements about um, what the better way to accomplish a lot of these tasks are, but that doesn't mean that I would, I would, I wouldn't say, for example, that there is literally nothing that the state does that mm-hmm. uh, benefits us, right? Even mm-hmm. the, so there is some degree, even though I, there's some degree to which the existing criminal justice system, which I think is horrific, there's some degree which it, it genuinely does, obviously, uh, prevent other kinds of rights violations, right? That's mm-hmm. all true. Um, however, I don't think that that, the mere fact that it benefits us in the right, in, in a certain sort of way, is enough to make the exchange non, the, the force exchange not theft, it might make it justified theft, right? If we're in such a bad situation or such a tragic situation where there's really, well, from my perspective, obviously, in such a tragic situation where there's really no way we could um, have a lot of the basic functionings of society without mm-hmm. um, an institution that forcibly compels uh, compels uh, uh compels resources for for its running like that and that but that would be different from it just not being theft at all right um, yeah and i guess i'm just saying the case, would yeah. you say no go ahead yeah it still seems to be the case that you have resources that properly belong to you and now this is something that some people dispute we can talk about that but that you have resources that properly belong to you that are then being confiscated against your will and there doesn't seem it doesn't seem in any other situation, in no other social situation, would we say the fact that the, the the organization taking the resources from you is benefiting you in some in some way is enough to make it not theft, right? So if I take your money and then I I don't know um, pay for just a ton of advertisement for embrace the void, right? Right, and it's I've taken like. $2,000 from you and just spend it all on this advertisement. And let's uh, say that it does really, really well, right? It doesn't seem to be the case that I've now like not stolen from you, especially. Totally agree. In- yeah. 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 So, so, so the so problem there to me like- seems to be you, 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 impl- you said in, implicitly in there that like, or explicitly, right. That uh, the, the collection of taxations is against my will. And what I'm yeah. saying is I don't, I don't concede. I, I, don't, I don't see how it is necessarily against my will. I see. I'm fully consenting to the government taking okay. taxes out in a functional way in exchange for functional right. goods and services. I see. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. That's a little, that's a little bit different than I was, I was, I was understanding. Okay. That's okay. good though. Yeah. So I would say that for consent to be real, it has there has to be the possibility of non-consent, right? Mm-hmm. That if that if I just if I you know that I'm going to uh, get it from you by force, whether you want it or whether uh, whether you want the advertisement or not, right. it's questionable whether or not it makes sense. Whether or not it makes sense to call the fact that you happen to like the idea 
making that consensual, right? You would Absolutely. still say that I have threatened you, that I've threatened you in some way that it's a coercive exchange, right? Right. So let's say in our hypothetical, um, you know, there is genuinely an alternative, right? You can either uh, leave the society or maybe there's some area uh-huh. of the society where benefits are not provided, right? That is still technically, mm-hmm. you know, within the country or something like that, right. but you're not benefited or something. I, I Like if we provide an alternative, mean, I guess I'm just trying to find a way where if we provide a genuine alternative so that people are genuinely consenting, is mm-hmm. it then true that taxation is not theft on your view? Right. Yeah. So I would say that if there was um, a real alternative that um, if it really was robustly voluntary, mm-hmm. that it wouldn't be theft. Okay. But the mere fact that there's an alternative option doesn't seem to be enough. So here's why is so if I tell you that if you come into my house, you mm-hmm. have to pay me a thousand dollars, Right then right. that doesn't seem to be theft because i'm not i'm not and uh, i'm not doing anything against your pre-existing entitlements right um but then if i say you have to either leave your house or pay me $1000 right the fact that you could leave your house right and pay mm-hmm. me a th- uh, to not pay me $1000 doesn't seem to be enough to make it voluntary Right. Because uh, the option set there is bo- they're both violations of your entitlements. And similarly, it only makes sense to say that the fact that you could you can emigrate, right? You could leave the country is enough mm-hmm. to make taxation voluntary only makes sense if we're assuming that the state already has legitimate authority over its uh, over its territory, right? Right. And and so the, I mean, there's a fundamental like, kind of legitimacy, then then it's just like me telling you that you can either pay me $1,000 or leave your house. Right. So, I mean, there's kind of a functional problem here, it seems to me, because, right, none of us... So, so funny enough, this this starts to feel a little bit like an antinatalism argument, right? Because it's like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm born into a society, and if my only options were, like, stay there and pay the taxes or get kicked out of the place that I was born, then that does seem like... A coercive kind of choice um it, but like you know even if i'm benefited from being born into and living in that society i agree with you there's a sense in which i can't consent to it in the first place just like i can't consent to being born in the first place even though right. Right. it might benefit me overall to do so is the, the comparison that i had in mind there um but that is to say you know in an ideal world right i would want people to I, I I would want there to be a freedom if somebody really feels like they need to opt out of society, they could opt out in place. The problem there, of course, is, you know, if you're living on a street that's being taken care of by society and, mm-hmm. right, like your house is protected by fire and police because of the location oh. that it is oh. in, right, there's a hard – it's hard to – sort of opt out of that system that you are so thoroughly entwined into um, in that kind of way. So I think it's hard to imagine how there could be like a functional sort of sovereign citizen in place kind of um, uh-huh. option there. And so to me, like the next best option is, you know, if people have the resources that they need, then they could 
functionally relocate. It's not ideal, but it it could be sort of less. There could be less oppressive versions of it, or something like that. Um, but if if what we're saying is because nobody can consent to living in a society prior to birth, that all societies are therefore unjust. There's probably a, there's, there's like a valid argument there, but I don't think it. I don't think it ultimately wants to be the kind of. The, I don't think it's a sound argument. I think that we ultimately want to reject some of the premises about um, consent to say that that's that what that, that, that therefore means is that we shouldn't have any societies. Because again, I think it's the same argument form that would lead us to think, well, we should never, ever, ever let anyone else have any more children either. Uh-huh. Well, I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying we shouldn't have society, right? The, mm-hmm. Again, I'm rejecting the kind of Rousseauvian picture right. of carelessness. Well, a society um, that involves taxation. So I guess I'm like, right, yeah. it's hard I to imagine say, a society to me that right. doesn't collect funds to engage in being a society. So I mm. guess I, it seems sort of implicit to me. Like if if you have a society, you have a group of people who are coming together to address, like I said, collective action problems mm. of various sorts. And, you know, if not bare minimum, you're going to have to pay the people who are doing the organizing on the society side of things unless it's sort of completely – sort of amateur not 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 pejorative way but like mm-hmm. non-professional version of a society in which case i think you you lose out on a lot of benefits that come from having professional bureaucrats right? i know everyone hates bureaucrats but like mm-hmm. bureaucracy is a valuable art that i think we should value the people who mm-hmm. commit to a life of social services because they can help improve the quality of life of everyone around them so i, I guess i'm how do you imagine a society functioning without taxation yeah. So one thing I want to observe there is I don't think, as you you said, um, and I'm not trying to be too pedantic here, mm-hmm. but you said that the society is um, getting uh, resources through taxation, right? Mm-hmm. But what do we mean when we say that the society is getting resources, right? I don't think that the state... Um, is really a great stand-in for the society as such, right? Because the society as such is actually just going to be all the daily living in that society. The society gets resources every time that that the resources that resources emerge within that society, um, and that there's all sorts of ways that 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 we can provide for the things we need in society, it doesn't have to be centralized in one particular place. Um, that there's no way I think that, uh, for example, suppose that my neighborhood owned that everyone in my neighborhood had like a cooperative, uh, stake in, uh, the roads around my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I, and then, and then we provided for that, um, ourselves, so on and so forth. I don't think there's any unique way in which the state running the roads in my neighborhood would uniquely be the society providing roads or the resources going to the state to do that would be uniquely society uh, getting the resources to do that. I think it's it's, we're doing things in society as long as we're doing them socially. And that kind of gets to the, to the, to the more fundamental question you're asking, which is how do we do these things without taxation? And the answer is just uh, that we do them through free association and through free exchange. So you might, you might wonder, um, you might wonder, especially about questions like 
uh, law and security, right? Since I've emphasized yeah. <laughs> that my anarchism, my anarchism is a anarchism with the rule of law, right? Um, and here, so I don't consider myself an anarcho-capitalist, but I think the best work on kind of legal system, legal systems and things like that um, in, in anarchist societies uh, is going to come out of a lot of the 20th uh, century anarcho-capitalist writers like David Friedman, Bruce Benson in his book, The Enterprise of Law, uh, John, and John Hasness. And basically the picture there is, so we already have, um, it's not hard to imagine people privately providing security in all sorts of different services. It's already easy to imagine people uh, providing arbitra- uh, private arbitration. It already happens. There's actually more people working in private arbitration than working in government courts. Right, but private is. arbitration is mostly horrible. Like it's, it's mostly a system that absolutely benefits the strongest person in the negotiation mm-hmm. at the cost of the other person in the negotiation. It's a really mm-hmm. like it's a terrible and like the, that's why it's getting more popular is because corporations are using it to take advantage of people. Mm-hmm. It's not a great system. So, I mean, like my, my fundamental question here would just be, does your society have police officers and judges and a military and if it does, are they professionals or are they people who have other jobs and are only doing that on off hours? Or if not, who's paying them and how are they getting paid? That just seems like sort of a very important fundamental part of society to me. Huh. Right. So so the first thing I wanted to say is on the private arbitration, I would I would hesitate to say, remembering that our comparison class here is with the state criminal justice system. Oh yeah, even even yeah, compared to that, it's, it's still not. really bad. Like, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't murder people of color to the same degree, but it certainly is a tool that has been used all over the place to cause a lot of a lot more harm than good. It seems like like um, that's why there are mandatory arbitration clauses in a lot of huh. contracts these days is because it's an exploitable system as compared to the criminal justice system, more exploitable. So. I don't but know yes. if I would agree. I don't that I'm highly skeptical that uh, that a centralized power structure is going to be less exploitable than one where uh, people don't are not able to compel people who don't explicitly consent into an agreement. That it seems like uh, there's a lot more you can do by lobbying and so on and so forth to change the laws when you know that you're going to get the resources to compel other people with it than when you can only get the resources to compel other people uh, when uh, the, when there's uh, the resources that organization is getting voluntarily. Uh, But, and also when there's going to be a robust competition of the sense of people aren't going to want to, uh, do business with a one arbitration uh, group given what they know about it versus the kind of being forced into engaging with a particular government court. I don't, I'm skeptical so, that it's that extreme. I, I don't deny that there's that there's abuses of private arbitration, obviously, but I don't, but again, with the comparison class is the state's criminal justice system. It seems like it's not going to be that extreme. Well, then, um, but but I, I do want to I do want to do want to get back to what you mm-hmm. were to the other question you asked, 
Um, because the thing I was trying to get to was, so I think, I think that's probably going to be a major part of the skeleton of the, of the proper functioning of uh, a legal system where you have dispute resolution and law emerges through dispute resolutions kind of as like a very radical common law, but where it's not coming down from from ex ante legislation, but it's coming out through the kind of ground up resolution of particular disputes. But who who enforces the common law? One way that I, one way that I, that I diverge from a lot of anarcho-capitalists, not the only way, but one of one way is I think, and I think often this might be uh, more for reasons of simplification, but I think they generally talk about this in terms of just the people who are explicitly like doing this for a living, right. Who are explicitly um, doing it as a kind of like commercial activity. And I think that's, that's all well and good, but I think there's also going to be a lot of dispute resolution, a lot of security, so on and so forth that is provided both informally and in kind of more cooperative uh, enterprises rather than uh, kind of explicit commercial ones. I, uh, the important thing here for me is just that no, no such group is holding a monopoly on either security or, uh, or legal uh, or le- settling cases. And, um, and I, once we have that on the ground, then I think that it's it, the important thing is just to have to keep that robust competition. And that competition is going to include non-commercial uh, activity as well, which I think might get to your, your point, which is to say, yes, there's definitely going to be commercial. Um, there's definitely going to be commercial provision of security and arbitration, but not uniquely so. Well, so what would the non-commercial be? I mean, so like, let, let, let's just focus in on like a really straightforward example, right? I have a community. I want to protect it from outside communities because not everyone mm-hmm. buys into my anarcho-capitalist worldview and likes to form huh. states and raise standing armies. Um, and I, I want a standing army so that like huh. people are deterred from invading my particular area. And my understanding of history is that a... Uh, you know, a well-regulated standing army is much better than a well-regulated militia in terms of actually effectively protecting a homeland. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want like um the kind of ridiculously sized armies that that you know America builds just for the sake of building them in some certain situations. But like, I think there's some some value to you know professional soldiers having professional soldiers in your community, and mm-hmm. so. You know, if they're not going to be farming like everyone else is, or they're not going to be doing trade or commerce like everyone else is, then they need to be paid in some kind of way. And to me, a an army that is paid through proper taxation is better than a mercenary army, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think there is a fundamental difference there when the government is sufficiently democratic and and reflects the will of the people but the military and the and and a a legal you know police force likewise are there to uh enforce laws both internally um and externally and i i like i get i get really terrified at the idea of that being all privatized because there's been attempts to have private you know militaries private um police forces and private 
um, firefighters, for example, in this country at various points in times, and it was generally pretty terrible. So I guess I, I wonder, I mean, obviously in a free society, people are allowed to have their own private bodyguards, but like, wouldn't we still def- definitely want to ensure, not just allow for a public supply of um, law enforcement? What do you think? Yeah. So two things. So one, I do want to distinguish. So it's important. I, so I intentionally avoid using the phrase private police. And I, there's a non rhetorical reason for that, which is that I think of police as being uh, an organization that has a unique uh, socially, socially uh, respected right, legal right, obviously not moral right, uh, unique a legal right to enforce the law, uh, so on and so forth. Um, none of the 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 or the institutions that I am talking about, or even that uh, anarcho-capitalist, and again, I don't consider myself one, would be of that kind. They don't. None of these groups would have unique legal rights. They'd be more like the bodyguard situation, less like uh, and not like the police. Um, so, so then it's just thing- like gangs, right? You're just talking about gangs fighting each other. It seems. So. Um, they might, so there's, there's certain respects in which they might resemble gangs, uh, to an outside observer, right? Especially if they're cooperative, um, cooperative rather than commercial. Um, but I don't think they would be of the same kind as existing gangs because I think gangs benefit from, uh, operating, um, kind of, under the uh, beneath the cover of the law right because again where are the things that that where are the, the things that gangs engage in it's always black markets right it's it's the things that where there is not uh robust protection against um against aggressive behavior in that sector of the economy um and then the thought here would be you wouldn't have that because everything would be an open market right there would be no black markets so you wouldn't have the kind of yeah. uh, natural reasons to specialize in being particularly ruthless that you have uh, with gangs. But I do want to do want to make one one further point, which is actually yeah. amenable to what you were saying, uh-huh. uh, which is the one the one worry that I actually take seriously about um, market anarchism and functionality and so on and so forth is the threat from external states. Mm-hmm. Um, so there've been, so there's never been a time in history where we have uh, what we would say is, yeah, this is 100%. That's definitely market anarchy, but there's been times that have approached it. Right. So uh, pre-conquest England, pre-conquest Ireland, medieval Iceland. These are such, these are societies where much of Legal much of the legal system is handled through uh, private arbitration. What well, we, I mean to call it somewhat anachronistically private arbitration, but uh, where the the resolution of disputes is not done through a government agency and is done in this very polycentric way, and also uh, where there's not really like a unique body of uh, there's not like a police force or anything like that. That is also handled through civil society through free association. And those worked pretty well internally until 
they faced the the threat until they had some kind of external force that is looking to conquer them. Um, so I think that's, in, I mean, again, in Iceland being probably the longest lasting example, that's obviously, in the, especially in the medieval world, physically separated from any like other large state. And that's a big advantage. Um, so I, that, I do want to say that that's probably the one thing that I think is the most serious worry rather than any kind of internal collapse um, or something like that. I mean, my concern would be that, like, in those societies, the internal stability is brought about often by things like honor culture, which brings with it all sorts of severe costs for the sake of, you know, if you don't have a, a unified um, governing or ruling system, you you have to rely on honor, which means duels, mm-hmm. which means, you know, um, and, and then even still, like, when you were talking about gangs or cartels or something like that, right? Yes, they make a lot of money because they can take advantage of black markets because of the existence of laws. But in the in the absence of laws, A, I still think that they're going to make a lot of money and they're going to have no one stopping them from just fully – full out murdering everybody around them who stops them from doing it. So like we're, we're running a little short on time on here, I realize. I'm so sorry. maybe we can – no, no, so that's totally – it's not a – I mean there's, there's lots and lots here to talk about. Um, and I I definitely want to get you back on, I think, to talk about this more at some point. But I thought it would be useful to wrap up with a little bit of talk of how we could implement this in our world today, right? right. So in the age of Trump um, – let, let, let me phrase it this way, right? I just finished reading um, Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, which is a great yeah. sci-fi story about sort of a semi-collapse of American society and a religious conservative takes over and mm. lots of – bad things, really horrible human horror stuff kind of happens to, you know, a lot of minorities, primarily people of color and things like that, as parts of the society kind of drift back towards some version of the state of nature. So I guess I wonder, how would you see us getting from our current state of highly polarized living in society yeah. to the kind of thing that you want without, is, is it possible to get there without a lot of violence and death or is that really just what we need to do in order to get there maybe that's an unfair way of asking that question yeah 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 so i've actually thought about this a lot in the last few years Mm -hmm. and i definitely don't think that the answer is that we just i don't know uh get through some massive amounts of killing or something just get rid of all (laughs) the government agents right and then everything would be fine i don't think that's the right answer um, because I do think that anarchists can agree that failed states are a problem and the power vacuum left by failed states are horrible. But notice what the phrase there is, which is power vacuum, and it's coming from failed states, mm-hmm. that it's because the state has kind of centralized all the sources of uh, monopoly, uh, sorry, centralized in a, to a monopoly all the different for, uh, forms of uh, association, all the different forms of uh, of security, and and so on and so forth. That then, when it kind of falls apart, there's nothing else to rely on, and people just kind of scramble to uh, either warlords or just total chaos, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I so I don't think the answer is just um, seeing the state as this group of people or this physical thing that we just need to wipe away and then we'll be done with it. Rather, I like to kind of uh, 
look at it kind of in the way that the the anarchist uh, Gustav Landauer said, which is the state is just a way that people relate to one another, and the way and then you can and the way of abolishing the state is relating to one another in a different way, and more concretely, what that means is kind of building up here and now uh, institutions that make it so that we less and less rely upon the state. Now that's a lot, that's a lot easier said than done. And it's also a lot easier said than going into details about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But I generally think that the right answer is going to be some kind of what the industrial workers of the world would say, which is building the new world in the shell of the old, where we try to make things such that we no longer rely upon uh, the state for the services that we currently rely upon them for. Um, and that's going to involve sometimes um, providing forms of uh, security for in uh, that we, that for ways of being in, in security doesn't necessarily mean like people with guns, right. Um, being able to take people out or something like that. It can also mean developing uh institutions such that people are a- easier able to cooperate with one another. So for example, uh, one of the good things about the Silk Road before it got shut down is it cut down on a lot of the violence of the drug trade because people were just the bare fact that people were able to do it online, that they were able to do it with kind of a rating system. So people had a sense of uh, of the reputation of, of what the people are dealing with, of the quality of the, the the stuff they're getting, so on and so forth. Things like that, developing those sorts of things, I think is, is an important part of uh, the very, very long run transition from the state uh, from the state to the rule of law, which again, in my view, would be anarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's a separate question though from another thing you said, which is what to do in the age of Trump. And that's a much more kind of like concrete, like looking at this exact moment question. Whereas the first thing I said is a very, very long, several generation project. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. So are you like, I guess, I I mean, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I'm curious, will you be supporting whoever opposes Trump in this particular election? I would. So support is a weird word, but yes. Sure. Um, So basically, the only I'm th- so the only person I can think of who really rivals Trump in terms of awfulness in the Democratic primary is um, is probably Michael Bloomberg. But even okay. there, I think it might be it's going to be a relative improvement even with him. So, yeah, I would definitely say that, like, in terms of electoral politics, it would be better for basically anyone except Trump to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, and I think there's a general feature though. I think that the most important issue for libertarians to focus on now are issues of general openness and specifically open openness and immigration, openness and trade, those mm-hmm. sorts of things where uh, the Trump and his movement have really started to move the kind of shared set of assumptions away from uh, the kind of relatively loose uh, views about about trade and immigration that, while very, very awful, are not as nativistic 
as as have become like a live option now. So I think the important thing now is for libertarians to focus on issues of immigration, of issues of trade, things like that. Fair enough. Yeah, and I would think that like there's a lot of small – there's a lot of um, talk about how um, our society's view of politics has become very nationalized. We've moved away from local yeah. politics towards national politics, and it seems like there's a lot of room there for libertarians to reignite people's interest in local politics where I do think that – um, local approaches, decentralized approaches, can be beneficial in at least for some problems, right? I've been I've been sort of pressing you on the ones that like are collective action um, yeah. tragedy, the commons kinds of problems that I think aren't quite as effectively solved in small communities. But I, that doesn't mean that I don't think that there is a lot of good work that can be done at the community level. So, um, so I realize we're, we're just about out of time here. Um, do you have any mm-hmm. final thoughts you want to say about? Libertarians, and we'll get you back on some time to talk more because I, I have some questions about like in-group, out-group oh, kind of behaviors, and yeah. I'm curious about um, if there's an anti-Semitism problem in libertarianism in particular. Um, but we can we could save those things for another time. So yeah, any final final thoughts before we get to the lightning? Yeah, round? I guess I guess I do want to say one thing about um, the kind of in-group, out-group stuff, which is, and this is I think one of the biggest reasons that I am specifically a libertarian indistinct. Uh, even over and above the uh, rights theory stuff um, and why I'm specifically a libertarian, why I'm specifically a market anarchist and not like a social anarchist is that I think that one of the greatest forces for um, destroying in-group tendencies for uh, opening up communities is the market system. Even in our deeply, gravely distorted market system, um, there's something to increasing the scope of strangers that you cooperate with on a daily basis mm-hmm. through market exchange that is really powerful. So, for example, Hayek, uh, one of the things that he, if you read any book by Hayek, there will be at least one section where he goes off on a seemingly pedantic, a pedantic tangent where he talks about how, why he prefers the term Cadillacy over economy. And the idea there, uh, one of the ideas there is that economy implies in its original etymological root that there's like a shared system of ends that's just being ordered like household management, whereas catalaxy um, allows for there being multiple ends. But kind of related to that is another thing that he says, which is that this term in its original etymological version has an, has another meaning, which is kind of the conversion of enemies into friends. And I think that um, is something that the market process is extremely powerful in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a major part of why I'm market anarchist rather than a social anarchist. But we can talk about that some other time. So in that in that way, you horseshoe back around to the global neoliberals who also think that in, uh, heavily interconnected economies prevent wars, essentially. That yeah, I definitely think that's true. My main gripes with them would be that I think they do not fully respect um, the kind of organic nature of the market process. And mm. this is going to go off on other stuff, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop myself. But okay. I think they still hold a kind of managerial, technocratic view of policy that they inherit from other sectors of the, of the political spectrum. Um, and, and that's one reason that I prefer the libertarian view. 
Fair enough. As someone who hopes the AIs will just take over, uh, techn- technocratic seems like the right way to go for me, but I I fully I understand all the problems there. Um, so, yeah, thank you. That's really great. Let's, um, you ready for the lightning round? Yes. Okay. So, for folks who have not listened before, um, we do the end of the show. We I will ask you a series of things, and you will tell me whether those things are real or not real. You can't. Uh, hedge in any kind of way you can't explain uh one way or another while you are going through them uh you just have to give me one of those two answers is that that's all right you ready to can go? i give a can i give a single sentence no nope. single sentence no, hold on single sentence preface to this it will not even be that direct okay which is if my answers confuse you a hint to them is in the aristotle episode uh, okay all right so good call back to aristotle um, and you can certainly hem and haw a little bit at the end here, but uh, okay. all right. So first off, I have to prime you for the questions. Do you believe that anything is real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real. So mm-hmm. first of all, the external world, is it real? Yes. I had to check. Yes. Okay. You had to double check. Okay, great. Uh, colors. Yes. Phenomenal consciousness. Yes. Free will. Yes. Selves. Yes. Genders. Yes. Races. Yes. Species. Yes. Oh, morality. Absolutely yes. Mm. Rights. Yes. Knowledge. Yes. Gods. Yes. Society. Yes. Numbers. Yes. Fictional characters? Absolutely. Yes. All righty. Holes? Yes. Chairs? Hold on. Yes. Okay. You're sitting in one right now. Good job. Yeah. Uh, sandwiches? Yes. Science? Yes. Natural laws? Mm-hmm. Beauty? Sure. <laughs> Causality? Yes. And finally, dharmas. I don't actually know what that is, but yes. Okay. I think you're our first, you may be our first person who said yes to everything. So congratulations. Perfect 100. You've, you've, you've staked out a, a novel philosophical position, which is all that a philosopher can ever hope for, right? Yes. <laughs> so literally Global all realism. things are real. Global realism. I, I appreciate it, and I feel bad for you because you're absolutely going to get canceled for this. But at, at least you went down swinging, which I appreciate. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and you can blame it all on Aristotle. So that's always mm-hmm. good. Um, well, Jason, thanks for so much for coming on. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? Yeah. So I haven't been writing there as much. And I'm tr- um, planning to uh, do a few things there in a, in a bit. But at C4SS.org, uh, which is a market anarchist uh, website, and there's a lot of people who disagree with me a lot of things, I would check them out generally. But you can go there and then go down to contributors and then see Jason Bias and that you'll have a lot of articles there. Uh, also, I'm on Twitter at Jason Lee Bias and that's about it for right now. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Jason, for coming on. No problem. I loved it.
I want to give an extra special start to a new Voidy year thanks to all our listeners and patrons out there. I feel so lucky every day that I get to do this passion project and share it with y'all, and your support makes it all possible. Uh, We've got several new patrons this month who I wanted to give a shout out to, so thanks to Trilobite Tark, thanks to Jonathan Yance Jones, thanks to Joel Nield. And thanks to Jason Lee Baez. Um, thank you all so much for joining. And um, as always, I want to give very special thanks to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Give me those sweet, sweet utils. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And of course, as always, extra... Top of the tier thanks to our uh, longest, most long-term biggest supporter, Dave Maslich. I really genuinely do appreciate all y'all. Thank you so, so much. Um, if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating or review on a podcast app near you. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. Um, and if you do notice yourself looking forward to these episodes each week, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. It's just $4 a month and you get our bonus book club content. Um, and most importantly, remember, you are the void and the void is you. I'm going to start that over because that was not quite right. It says like half of each in there. Um, there. There you go, Brian. You can save this for later. Um.